Here we go. Uh, we are on pod number nine of Sing Second Sports. I am your host, John Schofield. Joining me is my co-host, Ward Carroll, class of 82. Uh, and also joining us, our special guest week after week, Bill Wagner of the Annapolis Capitol. Uh, fantastic pod this week. We're going to talk to Nicole Mann, class of 99, a member of the NASA astronaut program. And we're also going to talk to Chris Hoffman and Chris Cleary. Classes of 1996 and members of a really decorated rugby program at that time. They're going to talk a little bit about the future of the rugby program and actually where it stands right now in terms of funding and whatnot. But before we get into that, uh, let's talk about the week that was. Bill, you had a pretty big story out there about something happening with Noah Song. Why don't you walk us through it? Well, I had written a column about Noah Song because I had been trying desperately to figure out what was going on with him. I reported that he filed a waiver. He confirmed that the last time I did a full interview with Noah Song on the record. He confirmed that he was seeking a waiver to defer his service commitment so he could pursue professional baseball. And then uh, I wrote a subsequent story saying that the Navy had denied, but it was actually a little bit different. What The Navy did not endorse his waiver requests, which ultimately meant nothing because it was still going to be decided at the higher levels of the Department of Defense. So months and months go by and I'm asking myself, what's going on with Noah Song? And I reached out to the Department of Defense and asked questions and I got passed through about four different public information officers before I got a an answer that was not an answer. It basically said the Navy is working with the service member to come up with a solution, oh, in which, okay, we all know that. So, uh, you know, and then at this point now, no one wants to talk. It's clear that someone has gotten to know a song and told him not, do not talk to the media. It's not going to do you any good. So Noah doesn't want to talk anymore. Uh, I can't seem to get the Boston Red Sox to talk about the situation. And I understand they're in a bit of a difficult situation trying to navigate this. And then I can't get any answers from the Department of Defense. So I was forced to write a column asking what is going on with Noah Song. He's got a waiver request out there. Are they going to grant it? If they're not, why don't they send him to flight school? Whatever, whatever. So lo and behold, before the column actually appeared in print, a decision had been made. In fact, uh, it appears that he Noah Song was notified by letter or whatever, however he was notified that a decision had been made. He was going to be sent to flight school. So that's the article that I wrote, that he's heading to flight school with a report date of no later than June 26. And, you know, there's a lot of questions still to be answered because I, one thing I do know is that Noah Song still hopes to pitch for the Boston Red Sox organization at some point. So we, you know, and Ward Carroll knows better than anyone, having been an aviator, that they don't seem to be too compatible, the idea of flight school and pitching for the Red Sox. And in questioning the Naval Academy about this, I kept repeatedly was told by uh, officials that Noah Song can reply, uh, apply for early release after serving two years of active duty. That will come up in May 2021. 
But how does one get early release from the Naval Academy after two years of active duty when one is in flight school? So there's a lot of questions still to be answered as to exactly what's going on here. All we know for sure is that Noah Song is going to report for flight school. If I had to guess, based on I put a lot of time and effort into looking into this whole situation, I think he's going to apply for early release in May of 2021 or shortly thereafter. And I have no idea where that takes us. Yeah, so I know Wags, you and I talked at length as, as you were writing this article. Um, and I know you you talked to some other prominent naval aviators about their views of how viable is this plan. Um, so I was an instructor uh, at VT-86, which is the Radar Intercept Officer training track. It's no longer a thing. Now Radar Intercept Officers are called Weapons System Officers in the backseat of uh, the F-18, the Super Hornet, um, back in the backseat of the Tomcat. We were called Rios. Um, so that program uh, is about 14 months long, barring any delays in terms of a pipeline. You know, sometimes the pipeline gets shut down for uh, aircraft, aircraft availability or uh, obviously you have weather issues that you're dealing with, uh, the health of the students. If you have a cold, you can't fly during the thing. And so um, what we've sort of reverse engineered, the, the intent of the Navy is to get Noah down there, fast track him. Um, and this is not the official statement of the Navy. This is just what we think is going to happen. Fast track him through the NFO pipeline till he gets awarded his wings. He earns his wings of gold. The NFO wings look a lot like naval aviator or pilot wings, except they have two crossed anchors instead of a single vertical anchor. Um, and so now the idea is, as Wag said, he'd apply for the waiver and he'd go to the Boston Red Sox with this sort of cool little hook where, oh, he's the real top gun and, and he's got wings of gold and he's a pilot. He's a Navy pilot who's, you know, pitching for the Red Sox. Um, which sounds very tidy and, and great for the PR, but it's basically, to my eye, a pipe dream. It, it can't be executed. I do not believe, in my experience as a instructor in the training command, that he will have his wings in a year. Further, this is not, and I tweeted something to this effect, because he was quoted in the story saying, I have two plan A's. As we all know, it's great to have two plan A's, you just can't execute them at the same time, right? I mean, I wanted to be a rock star as well as a naval aviator, and I was a rock star at a very small level when I wasn't a naval aviator um, or an author. I can be an author at certain times when I'm not an active duty naval officer, um, but you can't do those things at the same time. And certainly you can't be a professional baseball pitcher and be either a P8 NFO or you know, a crew member or an E2 Seco or a Super Hornet Wizzo. It just can't happen. So what my belief, he'll go one of two ways. He'll get there and he will not like flying. That's the other thing. You don't know how you're going to feel in the airplane until you're in the airplane. Right? So the number one guy in my academy class, I tried it out of flight school because he kept throwing up in the airplane. You know, It's not just how smart you are. It's like, can you take the smarts and when there's G on the airplane and there's people talking to you and you have to do it under pressure because the destination is getting close. It's like, okay, where do we want to go next? What do we got to do? You know, flight instructors kind of putting the pressure on you. Not everybody can, you know, respond to that kind of a thing and they wind up not doing it. So if he doesn't like it, he'll wind up 
leaving flight school and going to SWAS or some other, you know, supply corps or something else. And then that makes it actually more viable that he would go to the Red Sox. Now, the worst option in terms of being a professional baseball pitcher is if he likes naval aviation, you will never see him on a mound again, except for his son's little league practice, right? Because once you get into the pipeline, you're not going to exit it, right? Because you get your wings. That's just a start. Now do you go, you go to train and whatever kind of airplane you're going to fly, and then you go to your fleet squadron, and it becomes your life. It's more than just a job. It's your life, and that's the good part. So um, time will tell which of those two paths he takes, but I think the way that, and it was explained to you, Wags, by, again, these, these officials, um, it's just a little too tidy, their plan there, and I do not believe it will be executed, uh, meaning he will not get his wings and go pitch for the Red Sox. I don't think that will happen. That's my, that's just Ward talking, um, but I think I have some experiences to make that informed opinion. Well, and we, we talked about this offline on the phone, but I do believe that is the end goal, is that to get Noah Song his wings so that when he goes to pitch for the Red Sox and if he makes it to the major leagues, he can be touted as a naval aviator, an official naval aviator, and as you mentioned, the PR value, and perhaps he you know does promotions and recruiting on behalf of naval aviation. But the, again, it goes back to what's really the point of all this. So you, you got you, you invest money to to get a guy's wings. I was told by a very high ranking official who's a naval aviator, former naval aviator, that it's probably half a million dollars to get Noah Song his wings. And if Noah Song's never actually going to practically fly in the Navy and do his service time as a aviator, and now someone mentioned flying in the reserves. Well, can you really go play for the Red Sox for six or seven months and then, okay, I'm going back and fly planes now. I mean, I don't know any of the practicalities of that. You would know better, word, but can Noah Song pitch and then still in some way serve in the as even naval reserve aviation? No, the answer is no. Again, we've seen Eric Atani and other guys be able to be PAOs, right? So you can go, no offense to the PAOs that are part of the sink second team, but the, that skill set is not something that has a shelf life like weapon system knowledge and aero mechanic adaptability and all the other things that we're talking about, right? So the short answer is, is you can't do that. Um, the other question in terms of the PR, and as you were talking, I was thinking about it. So if I'm Noah and I'm there with the Boston Globe, and they're like, so you got your wings. Yeah, what kind of airplanes did you fly? Well, I never really made it that far, right? It's like it's just it, the story falls apart with the second question. Um, so um, anyway, I, I just think it's, it's a, they're trying too hard to, to shoehorn this idea into the mix. Um, and I think the lesson for those out there who follow Noah is if you're going to equivocate, do not choose naval aviation as your service assignment. Yeah, so we uh, we've talked to a bunch of people about Noah, and and certainly we hope that that everything works out for him, no matter what it is, whether it's in the back of a P eight or or in the Red Sox organization. Certainly, Coach Costi had great things to say about him. His pitching coach Bobby Applegate, uh, Chet, really everyone you know, is rooting for the kid, no matter what he does. So hopefully the the future is made clear. But I'm very mindful of both the the variables that Ward brought up and also the variables that WAGS brought up. We, we've had several different uh, experiences or at least perspectives on this. Billy Hurley in pod number one, he he was shut down in his attempts to do anything related to 
uh, sports until after his five years were up. Uh, Ted Carter, a couple of pods ago, you know, was very clear in saying that at first he didn't agree with the idea of letting uh, academy students go off and pursue sports. And now he's a bit more malleable there. Uh, hopefully we can talk to David Robinson and Roger Staubach in the future. Uh, we'll see what their perspectives are, but certainly something to keep an eye on. And I applaud, I applaud Wags for, for two great stories about Noah and really bird dogging, uh, some of this information from DOD and the Department of the Navy, uh, who are being not very open with him in, in terms of information. So awesome journalism there. Uh, we're going to head to break, and when we come back, we'll have our first guest, Nicole Annapoo-Mann. You are listening to Sing Second Sports. You're listening to Sing Second Sports with John Schofield, Ward Carroll, and special guest, Bill Wagner of the Annapolis Capitol. If you like what you hear, hit like below and share with your classmates and friends. Let us know how we're doing. Hit us up on Twitter at WeSingSecond. That's at WeSingSecond. Now back to the pod. All right. Uh, we're back from break. Thank you for joining us uh, on Sing Second Sports today. We're really excited to be joined by our alumni guest today, Nicole Anapu-Mann. She's class of 1999. Nicole was selected by NASA uh, in June 2013, and she's currently in training uh, down in Houston. Uh, she's from Petaluma, California. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from the Naval Academy, and she also holds a Master of Science in Mechanical Engineering. Uh, she now holds the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the Marine Corps and served as an F-18 pilot before her selection by NASA. One of the most decorated women's soccer players in Patriot League history, Nicole garnered first-team All-Patriot League recognition and United Soccer Coaches All-Region honors all four years and was named Patriot League Defensive Player of the Year in back-to-back -back seasons. Nicole Anapu-Mann, thank you so much for joining Sing Second Sports. How are you? I'm great, John. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on board. Awesome. So, hey, I'll, I'll just start it right off. Um, we, we try to uh, talk a lot about the physical mission and the importance of the physical mission at the Naval Academy and how it gave you the lessons learned you needed or the building blocks you needed to uh, go forward and be successful in your career, whether it's athletics or academics or, you know, profession. So how, how did soccer play a role in, in your uh, development as an officer to be? And then how much did you rely on the lessons learned on the soccer pitch as you transitioned through a career, a very successful career in the Marine Corps? You know, really, I can't overstate uh, how important the Naval Academy and specifically playing soccer at the Naval Academy were in, in my development as, you know, just as a person, as a leader, as a mom, as an astronaut, uh, it really gave me the foundation. I think that's been, been critical to, to allow me to have all these, these great opportunities in life. And, you know, some of that begins with being on the soccer field and working on a team as specifically peer leadership, which we all know sometimes can be the most difficult, you know, form of leadership. And so learning that at an early age at the academy, I mean, has just paid dividends, you know, throughout my life, um, you know, it time flying F-18s in the military and, and also to be an astronaut now, uh, you know, additionally, just the dedication of, of going to practice every day and learning how to work hard from a physical and a mental perspective learning how to deal with, you know, challenges and sometimes failures has been huge. And then juggling that with all the other requirements that the academy has, right? You know, academics, other leadership, military, and now also playing a varsity sport 
being able to do that is something that, you know, I still work on every day in life when you're trying to juggle family and your health and in your career as well. So, so it has just been, um, you know, an experience that really set the foundation for the rest of my life. Really quick before Ward jumps in, we had Karen as our very first uh, guest for our very first podcast. And as a former O-Rep for the women's soccer team, I was playing favorites, of course. Um, (laughs) Karen talked about, you know, just how special players were this past season and really how special her players have been throughout her career there. But you know, a lot of people don't know that Karen really built that program from scratch, and you were part of one of those earliest recruiting classes. Can you talk a little bit about what the culture was of the team when you first came aboard? You know, because you came aboard when you know there really wasn't much of a soccer program, unless I'm mistaken. Right. It was really the early, you know, beginnings of of soccer being a varsity sport, and and Karen had been on on board for a few years, but. You know, we had it. We sat in McDonough, and uh, you know, at halftime, our you know, our we would sit on the floor outside of her office in McDonough in the hallway, and that's you know, pretty much all we had. It was, uh, you know, kind of bare bones, and and but that was great. And what Karen, you know, brought to the table, which was so incredible, is her understanding and her appreciation for the the whole person, right? The whole midshipman. She wasn't just focused on soccer and winning games. She cared about how are we developing you know, in Bancroft Hall, in life as a team, she realizes we're going on to be leaders and to serve our country. And so she made sure that she incorporated that in all of our training. So it was so much more than just soccer. She's so much more than just a soccer coach. She is is truly a mentor and and her development of, of the team and, and these incredible young women uh, is, is, you know, something that that obviously we appreciate and hold very dear to our hearts. Uh, so, Nicole, we overlapped one year. My last tour on active duty, I was teaching at the academy. Um, I got there summer of 98. And uh, I also see in your bio here that you did two cruises uh, with Marine uh, VMFA squadrons. Which, which squadron was that? I was in VMFA 251, the Thunderbolts. Yeah, so I was CAG Ops on CAG-1, and 251 was the squadron aboard us with CAG-1. Um, so I have a warm spot in my heart for the T-Bolts. That's a great... Actually, I cruised with them twice. Uh, department head tour uh, aboard America, the last cruise on America, which was our Bosnian war cruise, and then I stayed aboard to be CAG Ops after that. Um, so that's really cool, small world kind of stuff. So when that's you... incredible. It is incredible. Uh in fact, it's good to see Smoke Beidler on the uh, the the board that's looking at uh, the Naval Academy's new approach to, towards equality. I don't know if you saw his name. Uh, he was. A I de- did. That's he, great. He's yeah. he's a perfect person to have on yeah. that board. So he was a he was a major in the squadron when when I was a um, lieutenant commander. I was the opso for 102 VF 102, and then then I was the CAG ops. Um, and, uh, so anyway, yeah, small world. That's, that's, that's what's fun. As we say in the show often, that's, what's fun about the business, uh, not just sports wise, but just, uh, alum wise. Um, that's what Absolutely. you, what you get into, um, when you become part of this family. Um, so let's talk about, um, how you made the transition from being a fleet aviator, aviator into TPS and then from TPS, how you, you got selected for the astronaut program. How does that work? 
So, you know, a lot of people ask me, did you always know that you wanted to be an astronaut? And, and some, you know, people knew that as a, as a young child. And I honestly didn't have it all figured out. I wasn't, yeah, I'd never met an astronaut. I was certainly interested in space and exploration, but it seemed like a, a far-fetched dream to me. So really following my passion in life and flying the F-18s uh, was the first time I honestly started considering maybe this option of becoming an astronaut. And and really, you know, as I was flying those cruises and the T-bolts, you know, you're talking to your leadership and trying to decide, hey, okay, what's the next step? What do I want to take orders to, uh, you know, after I'm done with my time at the T-bolts? And I majored in mechanical engineering at the Naval Academy. And to be honest, I really miss kind of the, the engineering side of the house, right? A little bit of that, the, the nerd work, as I would call it. I loved flying F-18s, but I but I also wanted to do something with my engineering degree. And so test pilot school was really the best of both worlds for that, right? I could still fly jets, but I could also use my engineering degree to now influence the development of new weapon systems, of new tactics. And so, so I started looking at test pilot school as an option and applied. Uh, the first time I didn't get accepted and I applied uh, the second time and found out that I got accepted while I was on that second cruise with the T-Bolts uh, and then off to test pilot school and then did uh, three years flying operational test at Pax River and VX-23. So you were in, yeah, VX-23 doing Super Hornet stuff as well? Yeah, so I got, got to fly all versions of the Legacy Hornet and the Super Hornet as well. So as a, as a Marine, that's pretty unique opportunity since we didn't have uh, Super Hornets. Yeah, we don't have Super Hornets in the Marine Corps. Yeah, fantastic. Where were you living when we were down there in the PAX area? I lived right outside the back gate there in Lexington Park, which was nice. It was about a seven-minute commute, uh, you know, to the squadron spaces. Yeah, yeah. So my first job when I left the faculty at the academy and retired, my first job was at NAVAIR working with the V-22 program. So I lived in, in Leonardtown for 13 years. I've now moved back to Annapolis, but I'm very familiar with uh, St. Mary's County and all of that, that, that area there. And I was not at all a test guy, you know, when I was a fleet. I had no idea what the acquisition world was all about, um, not to mention the test community. And uh, I got a crash course working V-22. Um, and, uh, you know, really an eye-opening experience, a really more rewarding experience than I'd anticipated it would be. Um, and, and so I, you know, warm spot in my heart for folks who go the TPS AED route, um, which isn't really the route you went, because then you got selected for the, the astronaut program. So how did that go? So that was, you know, we were talking about, you know, everybody's talking about, hey, what do you want to do with your career? Uh, you know, what's the next step? Do you want to go acquisitions? Do you want to go back to the fleet? Uh, you know, do you want to be an astronaut? And I was like, wow. Um, looking at some of the bios of folks that were astronauts and, and particularly the Marines, it was, you know, interesting to see the parallels between our two careers. And so we had an opportunity during test pilot school to visit NASA and do a, little, a bit of a field trip. And that's where I started to learn a little bit more about what it meant to be an astronaut and what that that job was. And, and really for me, when I found out that NASA was selecting applications, uh, you know, initially I thought, nope, I can't do this. Um, and I and I remember coming home and talking to my husband about it. And really because um, we had, uh, we, at the time I was pregnant and we were getting ready to have our first child. And and I thought, I don't, I'm about to have a child. I don't think I can, can do this. And he said, why not? And I said, well, it's just not the right time. He goes, it's never going to be the right time. Don't, 
you know, don't ever cut yourself short for that. And I'm so glad we had that that conversation because really that is a, a life lesson that you'll see. And I talked about how how the academy helped me juggle academics, athletics, and everything. And and then that just goes to show now. Almost, you know, 15 years later, I was trying to juggle having my first child, being a fighter pilot. Do I want to become an astronaut or not? And uh, and so fortunately, you know, I put my name in, in the hat and was selected to be an astronaut in the class of 2013. And it's just been the most incredible experience. And now my son is eight years old. And and really, it's still still that balance of, of family and work life. Yeah, I mean, time does fly. Um, when I saw you were in the class of 2013, that seems like just yesterday, like, oh, geez, that's like seven, eight years ago now. Right. right? That's crazy. It's, it's, it's crazy to think it's been that long. Yeah. So last question for me, and I'll hand it back over to John. Um, you're part of the uh, Boeing Starliner spacecraft program. Now, obviously, there was a lot of national recognition a couple weeks ago when Crew Dragon launched the SpaceX program. So are these programs existing in parallel? Because as you look at the archival news coverage, it sort of seemed at one point that the program wasn't sure who would be launching first and, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, and I know my good friend Chris Ferguson is is the Boeing guy. He's a Tomcat dude from the old days. Um, so, um, how, how what's this all about? When w- is your vehicle uh, scheduled to launch and, and how does that work with what's going on with the SpaceX version? So these are parallel efforts. And so right now, you know, once we stop flying the shuttle, we've been flying on a Soyuz spacecraft, which is a Russian spacecraft to the International Space Station. And that's been our sole means of transportation. So the two companies, SpaceX and Boeing, are now building spacecraft that will take astronauts to the International Space Station. And these are parallel efforts and they'll continue to, to function together. It provides us some dissimilar redundancy in making sure our astronauts continue to support the mission on the space station. And so it was incredible, I tell you, being down at Kennedy Space Center for the launch. I mean, the energy down there was just, it's like you read about, like you thought it would have been back in Apollo or in the No, it reminded me of Gemini when I was a little kid. I had like butterflies like I hadn't had since watching a Gemini launch. Which shows you how yeah. old I am. <laughs> it was like the movies. I'm serious. And, you know, unfortunately, with the, with the COVID restrictions, we didn't have the, the crowds and, and maybe all the, the hype that would have been surrounding it on, on Kennedy Space Center proper. But Cocoa Beach was packed. Those beaches were packed with people just watching the launch. And you just see little kids out there at these eye, huge eyes, and they're just so excited. And you realize how much this means to our country, to America, to launch Americans from American soil with American rockets to the space station. Uh, so it's just, it was just so cool. So cool to be a part of that history and see SpaceX launch. Um, and so Starliner, we're hoping to launch soon. And you're right, it's been, we weren't sure who was gonna launch first. Uh, you know, two different companies go through the tests and development, which as you know, from your time working, uh, you know, in, in PAX there, there's a lot of testing and sometimes that can be very challenging. So for Starliner specifically, we had some issues with our uncrewed test flight back in December of 2019. And based on that, they've decided to do another uncrewed flight, hopefully the end of this year. So that'll per, uh, put my flight, which is the first crewed test flight of that new spacecraft, uh, or hopefully early in 21. Well, I know I speak for the entire listenership of uh, Sync Second Sports when we wish you good luck on that, and hopefully it remains on glide slope and, and in a positive direction. I'll end with um, 
with one last question, Nicole. So say, um, you know, you're, you're standing out there outside of main office, you've got the pictures of like Wendy Lawrence and Sunita Williams and, um, you know, the, you know, the, the stats up there, 54 astronauts produced by the U S Naval Academy. If you had a chance to take 30 seconds with any current Naval Academy midshipman, any student, anyone impressionable, uh, willing to learn more about the, uh, astronaut program or being an astronaut, what would you say to them? You know, I would say to them to, you know, the biggest thing is to give back to the legacy and the Academy provides you with all the tools and all the experience that you need to, to move forward in life. And, and the most important thing, I think, is to follow your passions in life, whatever, whatever that may be. And if that leads you one day to becoming, you know, an astronaut, um, that, then it does. But when you leave the academy, you have so many options in front of you. Don't ever close one of those doors. Don't ever discount yourself. Take advantage of all those opportunities. Get every qual you can. Go to every school you can. You don't know where the future will take you, but... By doing that, then, you know, 15 years down the road when you're looking at your options and you realize, holy cow, I've done, my bio looks very similar to these astronauts' bios. I've done all these things in my career as a, as a young Marine. Now, now this door's open. Now I have this shot and you can decide for yourself, you know, where, where that path takes you. But never discount yourself and, and keep in mind, you know, to always represent and make sure you give back to the legacy. You know, it all starts at the Naval Academy. Incredible advice. Um, I, I know that Ward uh, can answer this question in the affirmative, but the advice I would I would give them on top of that, and and I and I assume that you uh, hopefully did it, is try to go to at least one tiki bar opening or closing while you're down there at test pilot school. Um, probably very worth it. <laughs> but um, sad that it's sound advice, John. Absolutely. <laughs> the tiki bar has been rehabbed. It's it's kind of a class it's, act now. Yeah, yeah. Sounds, sounds like someone on this call has had a Mai Tai before. I take my, <laughs> I, I tip my cap to you, Nicole. So, hey, um, uh, please give a, a great fist bump and a hello to another friend of the pod down there, Caleb Barron, um, who is, uh, again, such a great representative of the Naval Academy, former uh, soups aide when I was the PAO. Uh, say hi to her for us, but uh, you know, stay safe, keep motivated, and and good luck as you get uh, as you get closer and closer to this. Uh, man test launch in 2021. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Nicole. Awesome. All right. Hey, we're going to go to break really quick. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk to Chris Hoffman and Chris Cleary, both class of 96, representing the cyber community. You are listening to Sing Second Sports. You're listening to Sing Second Sports with John Schofield, Ward Carroll, and special guest Bill Wagner of the Annapolis Capitol. If you like what you hear, hit like below and share with your classmates and friends. Let us know how we're doing. Hit us up on Twitter at WeSingSecond. That's at WeSingSecond. Now back to the pod. All right, we're back. Uh, awesome segment right there with Nicole Annapu Mann talking about the NASA program, her experience uh, in the Navy Women's Soccer Program. Um, we are going to shift gears and now go from Navy women's soccer and NASA to uh, Navy rugby and cyber. Um, so joining us, uh, two friends of the pod, two great people. Uh, first of all, Chris Cleary, uh, proud class of 1996 graduate. He became the chief information security officer for the Department of the Navy in October 2019. He is the Navy's first CISO. 
Um, Cleary is also responsible for maintaining the security of DON data and information regardless of where it resides. He is also responsible for meeting communication security standards, implementing management solutions, setting policy and standards across the DON enterprise, and basic alignment with the Department of Defense cybersecurity architecture. Most importantly for this podcast, other than all of that impressive stuff, he was a two-time All-American rugby player at Navy. Uh, upon graduation, he transitioned to surface warfare and eventually became uh, an Intel officer affiliated with the reserves. Joining him is Chris Hoffman. Uh, Chris served as the deputy director for the Center of Cybersecurity Studies at the Naval Academy from 2017 to 2020. Before that, he served in a variety of jobs, both at the Office of Naval Intelligence, UCOM, and also at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He was commissioned in 1996, was a surface warfare officer before transitioning to Intel. He had successful tours on USS Taylor and USS Kearney, which I'll let Mr. Hoffman talk a little bit more about. And he also survived as the speechwriter for one superintendent, Vice Admiral Richard Naughton, which has a bunch of stories in and of itself, I'm sure. Chris was also a four-year rugby player at Navy and remains very involved with the rugby program and alumni events. Chris and Chris, I know there was an alumni event this past Saturday at Cleary's house. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that went and why you guys stay so involved in the rugby program? Hey, John. First of all, thanks for the intro, and I really appreciate being here. Yeah, so uh, maintaining the proper social distancing and COVID guidelines that the, uh, the <laughs> governor of Maryland passed out. So first of all, was for anyone listening, we did it completely safely. Uh, you know, we got together. One of the things that, that Chris and I have is a, a really, really tight knit group of friends from the, the 96 year group that we all play rugby together. And I'll admit those are the guys that I've really worked hard to maintain a relationship with uh, ever since graduating. Luckily four of the six of us are all geographically close to this area. And one of them, uh, Todd Brumers, his name is getting ready to take command down in New Orleans at the air station down there. And uh, we sort of sent them off. But when, you know, we get together uh, the, the bonds that we created playing rugby at the Naval Academy, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know we we're going to survive this test of time. Um, particularly if you knew two of the other guys and anybody would say, why do you still hang out with those two other guys uh, for as long as you have? Um, they're in California and I think Scott's in Louisiana. We, we loved it. And then it was just an opportunity to get together, uh, you know, talk about what we've all been doing and where we're all going. Uh, and there's always a rugby story that comes up at some point. And, and I know we'll get into this, and, and Chris has actually got a better sense of where the rugby program has been and where it's going up to this point. But really looking back at rugby in the 90s, you know, having started as a program in the late 70s in earnest, kind of getting a, a, a sense of momentum in the 80s, becoming a powerhouse in the 90s. And really at the time that rugby was taking off as a sport collegially to still be the number five ranked team uh in the league that we're associated with now is an amazing feat that we've been keeping this up for as long as we have. Uh, and I guess with that, I'll, I'll kick it over to Chris. Yeah. And, uh, thanks Chris. And, uh, John, I just also want to make quick mention that, uh, I really appreciate you noting, uh, my friend Chris's athletic prowess on the rugby pitch as he will, I'm sure ride that into, uh, to the next round of beers. Um, so any, or he'll maybe have to pay you for that, for that citation. Um, you know, just to kind of hammer home what uh, Chris talked about with the, the that connection, if you will, with the players. Um, you know, obviously, Navy uh, football, for instance, has their brotherhood uh, network, which is obviously very strong and, and very commendable. 
those of us in the rugby program also have that strong sense of brotherhood. Uh, in fact, one of the phrases that uh, is constantly drilled into your head from day one on, on the pitch is this term called with you, all right, and with friends, with you. And that is a, a phrase that basically, you know, resonates and it just basically means that that is athletic success. You, you, but you don't achieve that success without that teammate uh, supporting you. And that has definitely been a phrase that, you know, enabled that Navy rugby success, you know, especially while we were there and, and kicking some serious butt, you know, several top four finishes at the end of the year. But it, it definitely carries over into then, you know, our time as alumni. And that's something that definitely has resonated with us quite a bit. Um, definitely happy to talk more about the evolution of Navy rugby, which um, has been something, uh, as Chris, I think, also just mentioned a bit, which is uh, absolutely amazing to see within about the past 25 years, which I can't believe that's about how long it's been since we've been on the pitch, at least as undergrad players. Uh, but the absolute evolution of collegiate rugby, but Navy's ability to stay uh, at, at the vanguard of that evolution has been something very, very impressive. Chris Hoff, John mentioned the uh, Admiral Naughton piece. So I, I knew him very well when he was skipper of Enterprise. Um, I was aide to Air Lant, and we would go over to a Newport News shipbuilding um, to uh, check on the progress every month. And Admiral Naughton, then Captain Naughton, was brought in for a very specific purpose, was to get that ship back on track, and he did a fantastic job at that. Um, and uh, I think what we know about the superintendent job, and we've had Admiral Carter on the show previously, a couple episodes ago, and he, he was specifically uh, wired for success because of his sort of renaissance man um, abilities. Um, and I think what made Admiral Naughton fantastic at getting Enterprise back on track was maybe what we would call a bad slate in terms of being uh, the superintendent. Um, so what was your time with him like? Thanks for that question, Ward. Um, I mean, I, I will tell everybody who asks me, um, he was a very good boss to work for. Um, he, uh, as I was working with him and for him to help prepare his public messaging campaign, uh, I thought, you know, demeanor, uh, that didn't, uh, always translate, uh, super well to, to those who weren't used to dealing with you know, I guess what some might call an old school approach to communication. Um, but he, like several other of my uh, former skippers who also uh, have enjoyed a tremendous amount of success in the Navy, for instance, uh, I had the honor of uh, working for then Commander Phil Davidson, who now, of course, is Admiral Phil Davidson. Um, they are leaders who expect you to perform at your best. And if you are not cutting the cutting the muster, if you will, they will let you know. Um, but once you do, if you want to say prove yourself, but once you do show that you, you have that capability, you know, they will go to the mat for you. And I always respected him for that. So, um, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed working for him for the time that I did. Yeah. I, I got to know him. Uh, we would play golf together. In fact, and he, he knew I had the ear of less. And so, uh, you know, sort of this mutual uh, relationship at the time. Um, but when he got here, I was on the faculty um, and we actually had lunch at the uh, 19th hole over across the river. And I sort of warned him that there, there are moving parts that are a little bit different than his linear approach. 
you know him. He's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. I'm good. <laughs> so he's actually buried in the cemetery on the yard, very close to where Admiral Lawrence is buried, another leader who I, I got to know well when I was on the faculty. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I pass his headstone occasionally on my way to the main part of the yard. And, and I think warmly of, of him. He was a great, great man, a great leader. Um, surely was. Surely yeah. was. Over to you, uh, Wags. Hey, guys. Glad to have you aboard here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Navy rugby and ask you a few questions. Obviously, um, I cover varsity sports, but I do dabble in the club sports at times. I've covered ice hockey. Uh, in fact, I had uh, right before COVID happened in March, mid-March, I'd had an exchange of emails with Gabby about possibly covering the Army-Navy uh, rugby match. But uh, we had um, Admiral Carter on recently, and I asked him about club sports, and he talked about how important they are to the mission, and he specifically referenced rugby and the fact that it's such a well-organized and well-financed alumni group that has enabled Navy rugby to compete at the highest level. I mean, Navy can go out there and play with anyone. The Stanford's, and I mean, I, you know better than I who some of the powerhouses are, but can you talk a little bit about that? Also, perhaps speak about the facility that's been built over at the Brigade Complex over on North Severn, and also, you know, how you hire guys like Gavin Hickey, because to my understanding, he's a very high-level coach. Yeah, so to, to the fact of the, the nature of the, the collegiate, maybe rugby uh, landscape, you know, uh, when Chris and I were playing, there was really probably you could count on two hands um, uh, the amount of, of universities that took it seriously. Right. Um, and the service academies were among that, that handful of, of colleges, universities and whatnot. And that goes back to the point of what we were mentioning a little bit earlier, the evolution of collegiate rugby. Now you have so many schools that are very serious about this program for, for a variety of reasons that Navy is now it, rightfully so in, in that top tier of collegiate rugby uh, um, programs called D1A uh, run by, you know, USA rugby and doing very well again, not to be biased, but you no know, five, number five in the country, at least when all the athletics uh, of course ceased due to COVID. Um, but the, 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 the amount of, of competitive rugby has, has been, it was, it was amazing to watch. I mean, amazing to participate in for sure. Um, not to go too far afield, I'll give, you know, I'll let Cleary, if, if you have about three hours, he could probably go on about how many times he, he dominated on the rugby pitch. But um, the, the, the quickly, though, to your point, Wags, about the, the, um, the rugby complex, you know, again, you know, not to go sound like too much like the old grads, but, you know, we did it in the, uh, these terrible old fields of Hospital Point and somehow we're able to, to succeed. But I think to, to the academy's credit, they realized that that wasn't going to last, especially as the, the competitive element aspect of collegiate rugby advanced. So many uh, um, very savvy alums got together and through a lot of uh, sweat equity and actual equity, you know, built the facilities to keep Navy rugby at that highest level. And it's been quite commendable. But over to you, Cleary. Yeah, look, I'll go a little bit more into history, which was, I remember some of the jokes, and, the, and and if you go back 20 years ago, there's still probably bad blood over this. So, like, even as far as the letter sweaters were concerned, right, the rugby guys with the letter sweaters with full seven-inch letters that said rugby on them, 
And it was, oh, you're a club sport. You're not allowed to have a seven-inch letter. You have to have a five-inch letter. And then the joke became, you know, five inches of rugby were better than seven inches of football, right? <laughs> the days that football just wasn't performing. You know, they had lost to Army all four years through there. They were, they'd only have one or two wins a year. And you had a rugby program that didn't have the facilities but absolutely took it every bit as seriously as any varsity program on the, on the yard. I mean, we worked out – three hours a day, every day of the year, had to run the hospital point. We had one little shed we were working out of and we were competing at the highest levels with a lot of things that we had to fund ourselves. You know, we chip in for our own travel, some of our own jerseys, you know, we put, you know, we raised money as a team selling t-shirts so we can go buy, you know, new jerseys. And we were competing with at the time Cal Berkeley that was a bona fide varsity program. One of the few fully funded programs in the country that we were every bit uh, on par with them. The other advantage of doing this as a service academy, I had never touched a rugby ball in my life until I showed up at the Naval Academy. Actually, I wanted to play lacrosse, didn't work for me, got kicked off the team. A senior said, hey, come to the hospital, come up to the you know, hospital point, we're going to play rugby. And then, you know, found something that I really, really enjoyed that you could, that was huge, that you could take guys that have never seen a rugby ball and within a couple of years had trained them and conditioned them to be competing in ridiculous capacities. Um, you know, at the time it's much different now, but you know, the all American program, right? It's not today. It's much different than it was then, but then like the all East team, which would feed in the all American team was just army Navy and one or two guys from like Maryland and maybe one guy from Boston college. And that was the all East team uh, that would feed into the all American team. And I would imagine at the time, half of the all American team was made up of West point army and the air force Academy. So just a great showing for the service academies. And just to, to, to parrot on the, the alumni side of this, you know, that started in earnest. I don't know, Chris, we'd say like a decade ago, maybe really in earnest. Getting yeah, together the alumni association. To the point now where we have annual banquets. Uh, we raise a good deal of money. And a lot of that money raised was the things that allowed us to have that facility over in Hospital Point to begin with. I think the bleachers were all alumni paid for. Actually, I think it was – Chris, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm thinking – with the exception of the big building that houses the locker room, the pitches, the lights, and the bleachers were all alumni paid for. I am about 90, 96% sure that that was about, uh, that is correct. <laughs> and and now, is there yeah. some sort of um, like foundation that helps cover the coaching staff salaries? Well, and that's the, that's the alumni gets together for that. I'll kick this back over to Chris, but to the point where as we march towards an end state of becoming hopefully a varsity program, you know, the facilities are in place, the head coach is in place, the, the talent that exists on the team is in place. Uh, and to become a fully bona fide varsity program uh, would be a, a real credit to the academy because it's immediately competing at the level that it needs to compete at to keep the recognition for the program coming in. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll take that baton back over. I'll take the rugby ball back from you there, Cleary. But um, to your, to your question, Wags, um, I don't I haven't seen obviously kind of the detailed books uh, of how it breaks down. But I can tell you uh, with certainty that that uh, private support, mostly coming from alums, has absolutely been critical to bringing on, like, like you said, Gavin, you know, world class facilities, world class coaching to build a world class program. I mean, that's what it equates to. Right. Um, and yet another thing, and you know, you guys may ask this, but I do want to bring it up too, is 
you know, it's not just been the success of men's rugby at Navy. It's also been the success of women's rugby at Navy that really, you know, keeps us at a world-class level. Actually, uh, a little bit of history. When I was, you know, serving as speechwriter for Admiral Naughton when I was there in the early 2000s, I also happened to be the officer representative for Navy women's rugby. And um, to see where they've gone, you know, because they started when Chris and I were there as NIDS by one of our classmates. Uh, she was one of the plank owners. Her name was Julie Maynard, now Julie Alfieri. Um, so within the span of 25 years, they've also created a nationally dominant program, which I think makes rugby uh, a very uh, uh, enviable candidate for inclusion into the, you know, if that is the, the desire of the academy and whatnot to, to bring it into the varsity program umbrella, because you do have that balance between yeah. men's and women's success. And the women actually went further faster than the men, you could argue. They started a program and in a quicker, shorter span where they competing at a higher level and doing very, very well at that level. So last question for me, I was curious about recruiting. I mean, a guy like Gavin Hickey, who's a high-level coach, isn't going to just sit around who might show up. But I think, by and large, the bulk of the rugby players are, like yourself, went to play another sport and then found rugby. Um, but I also have to imagine that he is also recruiting some talented rugby players who, you know, they won the opportunity to attend a great institution like the Naval Academy, but they've been playing rugby and – they know Navy's one of the best in the country. So it, is there recruiting involved? Uh, I'll take a quick one. Short answer, yes, an emphatic yes. Um, one of the, I want to say feeders, but again, uh, uh, Navy Rugby has made a very concerted effort to grow youth camps um, to help identify that young rugby talent. Because another part of the evolution of rugby writ large in this country that's been also amazing to watch is the growth of youth rugby. You know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was no such thing as high school rugby. At least not that I ever saw. Maybe it was in small pockets in California or whatnot. But um, the, the short answer is yes. The Navy rugby is making very visible efforts. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, I admit, I just do a little bit of research to make sure I have my facts all straight before talking to you guys today. But on Navy rugby's homepage, there is a link for recruits. You know, how, how do you go and identify and get that young talent? Yeah, and I, and I think the only thing they're trying to follow up with that is unlike a varsity program that could get, you know, an appointment to the academy through some of those things. I'm not sure that Navy Rugby as a club program carries that weight. So there's definitely, an, you know, to, to recruit and identify folks. I'm not sure. And again, having don't not on the inside, what the linkage is to finding that one guy and how much weight can Gavin bring to an admissions board to say, hey, look, we'd really like this guy to be considered uh, for an appointment because of, you know, we want to bring him to the rugby program. So the yeah, non-person program, I don't know if you can do that yet. Yeah, but then, I mean, so there is probably definitely some of those administrative specifics, but in more generality, I think maybe the Naval Academy of the other service academies enjoys the um, distinction that, of course, whether you're a varsity athlete or a club athlete, you're still coming to enable to an academy and your education's get you're getting paid to go to school. So there might be some of that benefit. But like clear, like Chris said though, there's obviously some administrative limitations that a club sport does, uh, has to face as opposed to a varsity program. All right, so I'll take it back here guys. First question, um, I guess uh, Hogman, I, I just wanted to know if Chrissy was done building the gazebo that uh, she's apparently constructing in the kitchen. You know, this is an audio medium. 
and you do have a mute button. I mean, I hate to like get you well, on board with what basic on, cyber is. To, to address that question, since <laughs> you guys promised us a, uh, a local dining venue to help this conversation, I wanted to have some atmospherics as part of our audio. Perfect. <laughs> so well, I'm, wor- I'm working to help you, Schofield, but if you don't want me to help you, so be it. <laughs> hey, Donald, Donald J. Trump usurped all of our best laid plans. Oh, as, way, as way, to, way to take it to POTUS. Way he, to, tends, way to he tends to do with everything. So I'll, I'll end with this. First of all, Chris um, Cleary, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't mean to make this all about, you know, your current position and, and, and your status as a, as a member of the senior executive service, but your job is a big deal, particularly in a growing environment. Um, you know, which is the cyber community. Uh, Chris played a very valuable role in building the cyber, uh, curriculum at the Naval Academy. I was there as the PAO when we graduated our first cyber operations majors. Obviously cyber is here, uh, right now. So from your position, um, which again, I stress to our listeners, it's a big position here in SES. What, what do you, what, what exactly do you do and what do you think the, the future of the cyber battlefield is? So, yeah, that's a loaded question, right? So the, even the, the fact that I'm here in the first place all had to do with, with the realization that the Navy wasn't getting it done. And there was a report, a cyber readiness review that was, that came out in March of 2019. It really poked the Navy in the eye, which the Army and the Air Force came back begrudgingly and said, look, that could have had any of our covers on it. it. We're all just as guilty of what's going on for us, for our inability to take this mission space serious. So when they appoint, when they when they reestablished the Don CIO office and put it directly under the secretary, they said, we should probably have somebody in the organization that represents the, the CISO community writ large up at that level. Now, we are still struggling with getting message outs from consistency and getting everybody to kind of to play on one page. Uh, but the importance of cyber as a mission space can't be can't be uh, understated or can't be overstated, whatever the right way is to say that. You know, this is the new means and method of warfare that this Navy is going to be looking at for the next generation. I, I would argue that the way that we're looking at cyber now, you could almost equate to the way we looked at the airplane in the, 20, in the 1920s, right? That it was, hey, I get it. It's this thing that flies. And I know you've demonstrated it could sink a ship, but we think that was sort of rigged and and we don't know if we're really going to put our push the believe button on this thing called the airplane. I think that's kind of where we are right this minute in cyber. We understand the importance it has on our ability to execute our mission, but we haven't fully seen an adversary poke at it to the point where we think it could degrade our ability to execute that mission. We're afraid of it, but it hasn't been proven yet. It hasn't been proven yet at scale. And we're anticipating that. And one of the unfortunate things about stuff like cyber is now take COVID as an example. You know, COVID sucked all the oxygen out of the room when you really wanted to start talking about these other future things to be concerned about down the road. And the other real thing that I'll, I'll, I'll say in this forum, and I'll probably regret it at some point in the not too distant future is, you know, as we look at the way that we're building our Navy, you know, we're building a Navy with a, with an end state of 355 combatants to one degree or another and, and auxiliary ships. And this is the Navy we're going to put to sea. Well, I would argue that, you know, that may not be the thing that's going to enable us to win in certain theaters. We need a Navy. There's no question about that. We need the ability to engage hypersonic weapons and do, you know, uh, uh, amphibious operations and ship to shore, you know, all of the things that the, the carrier battle group was designed to go do. 
But without us fully appreciating and hardening, hardening our cyber environment, we may find that that, that that battle group's unable to execute its mission because we haven't fully taken into consideration all the things that enable that that battle group to do its job, critical infrastructure, supply chains, the defense industrial base. Uh, and you know, like I said, we're getting there. It, it, it's got acknowledgement. It, the, the, there's some emphasis being put behind the mission. Um, and I really think you're going to see this thing over the next five years just become more and more and more important to the way that we do, you know, combined arms uh, within the Department of the Navy and, you know, within our sister services of the Army and the Air Force. I completely agree. And and part of that conversation for the next five years is certainly going to be Chris Hoffman. Um, I'll tell all our listeners that Chris has just recently transitioned to uh, terminal leave and uh, retires after 24 uh, uh, years of, of dedicated and loyal service to our nation. He retires officially, I believe, on 1 September 2020. Right, Chris? And so can you tell our listeners a little bit about what is on the horizon for you? And then from an academic standpoint, how you've really viewed the cyber, uh, you know, situation out there. And then, and then we'll go ahead and finish this off. All right. Thanks, John. And, um, yeah, I appreciate that plug. Um, in fact, uh, I'll be posting my LinkedIn profile handle, uh, as part of this podcast notes, I hope. Um, so helping with my transition. Um, yeah, it's, uh, not, not too much on me, but it's, I'm, I'm, pursuing several opportunities that will keep us in this geographic area. You know, we love Annapolis. We want to stay living in Annapolis for, for many reasons. And thankfully, uh, Annapolis continues to be one of those, you know, cyber hubs for, you know, governmental you know, operations and, and so on and so forth. So hopefully it's a, a target rich environment. Um, but academia, just very briefly, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, I've been very fortunate for these past three years to be uh, intimately involved in the cyber curriculum program at the Naval Academy. Um, and I will tell you that uh, it's been absolutely uh, amazing to see how that's grown in just three short years, um, highlighting with physical infrastructure of the uh, newest academic building coming online, named after uh, one of our cyber pioneers in the Navy, uh, Admiral Grace Hopper. Uh, world-class facility. In fact, uh, hoping that that's where my retirement ceremony will actually uh, will, will conduct it up there. And I think you, uh, several of the folks on this pod may actually be involved in that ceremony, uh, uh, intel on that front. Um, but just as kind of a, a quick wrap up, you know, on the, on the academics again, you know, the approach the Naval Academy has taken is, is something that, uh, you know, we're very proud of. And that is kind of a, a, a across the entire range of the Brigade of Midshipmen, we ensure that regardless of the academic specialty they they major in, they will walk away with an appreciation that the impact cyber has on the operational environment. <clears throat> no, I appreciate that, Chris, and, and thank you for what you've done, and, and thank you to both of you for what you, you are doing um, in the cyber battlefield. I think this pod continues to show you, you know, that that athletics is the springboard to to bigger and better things. It's not just to be the CEO of an aircraft carrier, but we talked to Nicole Anapu. Uh, you know, she's about to, you know, embark on a quest which might result in her walking on the moon. Um, you guys are on the front lines of of a new and emerging and, and incredibly critical battle space, which is cyber. Um, Chris Cervello and I have started a podcast. Um, so, you know, we, we all have to have our little, <laughs> we all have to have our, uh, <laughs> our, um, our, uh, things. And we can't even play golf as well as Ward did, you know? So like Ward can claim at least some like phenomenal golfing, 
Um, and we're certainly not the journalists that wags it. So, um, but thank you. Thank you for, to both of you for joining the podcast. Thank you for doing what you do. Um, I will tell you that, you know, you see the t-shirts from rugby that say elegant violence on them. You know, these two gentlemen are, are two tough as nails, you know, physically imposing human beings. But then, you know, you listen to what they're doing in the cyber environment. They're also incredibly smart. That's evidentiary of the, uh, of how well-rounded Naval Academy people are. So, Chris and Chris, thank you so much uh, for joining the Sing Second Podcast. We're going to go to break, and when we come back, Ward, Wags, and I will take us out. You are listening to Sing Second Sports. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please shoot us a DM at We Sing Second. That's at We Sing Second. There are a number of national and local sponsorships still available. All right, we are back for the big finale on Six Second Sports. I'm John Schofield. Uh, Ward and I are going to bring you out today, um, you know, a little bit of breakdown from what we heard from Nicole Mann, uh, also from Chris Hoffman and Chris Cleary. Uh, again, I say this every week, but I love these interviews. I love hearing the perspectives. I love hearing the history of certain sports that I really didn't know a lot about. Um, so for you, Ward, what what surprised you about what, uh, you heard today, and uh, and and how did you think about the interviews? Well, I'm always surprised at the range of the conversations. I think this is why folks would subscribe to the Sing Second podcast. Is it's it's not just this didactic conversation about the sport, the whoever the interviewee played or is playing. In the case of midshipmen, we talked to. Um, it's where did you go next? It's big picture stuff. And in so presenting it in this form, you get a very comprehensive, holistic view of the Naval Academy experience through the lens of sports. So we always, I'm surprised, to answer your question, by everything that we wind up talking about and, and the, the lessons of our guests, whether it's going into space as part of the commercial NASA venture, as Nicole is, or it's being an SES in cyber, the cyber world. Um, uh, with a very informed opinion of whether or not rugby should be a varsity sport. I mean, I just love it. I, I love it, and I'm proud of being an alum. And doesn't matter what class you're talking to, they all wind up being these great Americans in ways that we can't predict going into the conversation. So I'm always surprised by what we wind up talking about, regardless of who the guest is. Yeah, to be honest with you, I never knew that rugby was not a varsity sport, and uh, and Chris and uh, Chris will probably kill me for that, but um, yeah, I just didn't know, and I just assumed so based on how many people I've known throughout my career in the fleet and after the fleet who have said, "Oh yeah, I played rugby at the Naval Academy." Um, so I really didn't even know until I got there as the PAO. So um, you know, again, it's it's a credit exactly what Slapshot said that you know for every great you know, Billy Hurley or Noah Song or Keenan Reynolds or, or Phil McConkie or whatever who have gone on and played professional sports. You have people who have done amazing work out there on the intramural fields or in the boxing ring or on the rugby pitch. Amazing athletic exploits, uh, which still contribute to the overall lore of, of, of the Naval Academy, producing people of consequence, both physically, mentally, 
and morally. Um, so, you know, the, the physical mission part being, uh, the, the operative phraseology for this podcast. But, you know, I think it's, it's safe to say that all three of these guests today are, are just amazing people. And, and I know you and I wish Nicole the very, very best. I hope to hell that she's, you know, the first woman to, to set foot on the moon and, and shit while they're at it, like send Kayla Barron up there with her. Um, you know, let's plant a Naval Academy flag on the moon. I like it. I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we are going to shut her down right here. Many, many thanks again to Chris Cleary, Chris Hoffman, and, and particularly Lieutenant Colonel Nicole Anapu Man for joining us during her extremely busy schedule down there, Houston preparing uh, to hopefully be the first woman on the moon. Uh, so we're going to shut her down right here. Uh, again, the pandemic continues, so we encourage everyone to stay safe. And when applicable or when wise, please stay home. Uh, but definitely, please subscribe and rate the pod. Please share it with your friends. And uh, if any of you um, is interested in uh, sponsoring the podcast, please contact us. There are plenty of good sponsorship packages available. Uh, for Word Carol and Bill Wagner and our intrepid producer, Chris Cervello, my name is John Schofield. This is Sing Second Sports. Out. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this pod are our own and don't represent the views of the Naval Academy Athletic Association, the United States Naval Academy, or any organization for that matter. Play-by-play calls from the Navy Radio Network are used in the opening of the show and from time to time will be part of podcast segments.